Welcome to another amazing episode of the Happy Hour Podcast. I am your co-host, Jonah Paquette, and with me as always, Supriya Gill. And we are welcoming you to what some have called, I'm not going to say who, but some have called the best podcast in the mental health and well-being space out there in the world. So great to have you with us. And Supriya, what are we getting into today? Today, we get to talk to a really, really awesome psychologist, Dr. Emily Edlin, and we get to hear more about autonomy-supportive parenting and what that looks like and how to foster that, if that is the approach that you're wanting to engage with in your life. And for listeners, this is a nice uh, companion piece, you might say, or a nice parallel episode. Um, you know, if, if you liked that one, you might like this one of our conversation with Lenora Skenazy, who we had that fabulous conversation, listeners will remember, on, on some similar themes, right, in terms of the importance of independent play, the importance of parents letting go, kind of breaking that cycle of helicopter parenting. But uh, obviously, Dr. Edlin comes at it with some slightly different perspectives and angles, but I think it arrives at some similar places in terms of just the importance of fostering autonomy and independence for young kids, for them to become fully formed, healthy, functioning adults as they grow up. Totally. Yeah. I, I would think that there is a lot of overlap with Lenore and with Dr. Edlin's writing. We actually talked, I think, we talk a little bit about that in the podcast episode and how a lot of this is based off of self-determination theory. I know what you just described and that, you know, helping, <laughs> well, it's, it's basically what you just said, helping kids to foster autonomy, relatedness, and and how that can facilitate competency, connection, and, and really just a lot of better outcomes in a lot of ways. I love when our field of psychology takes kind of pretty straightforward, basic ideas, gives them a fancy label, and then you get to feel really smart when you're like, oh, I just talked about self-determination theory. That's so cool. I'm so impressed <laughs> with myself. <laughs> I'm feeling no, attacked. no, it's, I was very impressed. I mean, great knowledge drop, Supriya. Um, but I, I always joke about that in my talks and my writing around that. Of like, if you ever want to, you know, take a field that is great at taking some pretty basic ideas and making them sound really packaged and giving a three-letter acronym here or there, it's like psychology is for you. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty accurate. Um, yeah, but I think that in that way, there's still a lot of great. Again, I don't think we went over any acronyms in this podcast, though, did we? No, I don't think. I think this might be an acronym-free, you know, because some episodes we talk about, you know, your CBTs, your DBTs, your ACT, your ACTs, your, your this, that, or the other, uh, your EMDRs, your, you know, whatever. Our field has tons <laughs> of acronyms, but I think this might be a fairly, oh, yeah, suit. this might be a fairly acronym-free episode. Don't hold us to it, folks, but, um, you know, but, yeah. but I think so. <laughs> Although as as you're talking, I'm thinking autonomy supportive parenting is kind of a mouthful. <laughs> ASP might be easier. Call to it say. ASP. Yes. Um, <laughs> so you want to tell our listeners uh, who aren't familiar with Dr. Edlin a little bit more uh, about her? Yes, I do. So Dr. Emily Edlin is a clinical psychologist who adds science and common sense into the landscape of parenting guidance with her blog, The Art and Science of Mom. She pens the regular parenting advice column, Ask Your Mom, for Parents.com, has written for national outlets such as Washington Post, Scary Mommy, and Motherly, and has been featured as an expert across parenting articles in outlets such as the New York Times, CNN, and BBC. 
Emily works with children, teens, and families as the Director of Pediatric Behavioral Medicine at a private practice in Oak Park, Illinois. She lives in Oak Park with her endlessly supportive partner, three opinionated and charming children, and two rescue dogs. Emily's new book, Autonomy Supported Parenting, Reducing Parent, excuse me, Reduce Parental Burnout and Raise Competent, Confident Children, is in stores as of September 5th. So hot off the press at the time you're listening to this, folks, and, and definitely pick up your copy. I forgot to ask her what her two rescue dogs would have been. I always ask, if I, by the way, listeners, if I see anything regarding animals, pets, uh, more about that, but I think I forgot to do so with Emily. So Emily, if you're listening, follow back up with me. I want to learn all about those dogs. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, everybody else, stay tuned for our great conversation with Dr. Emily Edlin. That'll be coming up right after this short interlude. Stay tuned. Welcome to the happy hour, where we are really excited, really happy, if I may say so, to be joined today by Emily Edlin. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. Well, Supriya and I have been uh, very excited to get a chance to talk to you. We actually talked not too long ago with uh, Lenore Skenazy, and we know that Lenore absolutely loved your forthcoming book, which we're really excited to be uh, to be chatting about here today as well with you. But before we get into any like content related stuff and we you know obviously the listeners you're here because you want to learn from our fabulous guests like uh, like like Dr. Edlin here but before we do that Supri always indulges me one what I call the one Jonah freebie every episode which is a, just a random question that has nothing really to do with your work it could be about you know favorite foods desert island questions two truths and a lie varies topic by topic person by person but anyways I was going to ask you about pizza and living in Chicago, how you felt about the whole East, you know, New York style versus Chicago style pizza. But I'm happy to tell you listeners that off air, Emily confirmed (laughs) that you preferred New York style, but I'm not going to make you admit that on air around your Chicago area listeners. I don't want to alienate anyone. There's no proof. There's no no proof. (laughs) This is just a rumor that's been swirling around our studio here. What I was going to ask you otherwise is you wear lots of hats. You obviously are a clinical psychologist, expert in child development and parenting and a wonderful book, and you contribute to all kinds of outlets, which we're going to talk about. And a mom yourself. And a mom yourself. Yeah. If you were not a psychologist and if you were not a writer, what would you do? And I was sparked by this question. Someone asked me, if you were not a psychologist, Jonah, what would you be? And I said, I would be that scene in Ace Ventura when he whistles and all the animals come out. So I wouldn't be a pet detective. I would just want to be somehow surrounded by thousands of beasts. I could totally see that. <laughs> <laughs> I could see it. I took a wrong turn somewhere. But Emily, what, what, would, what do you think you would be? You know, what, what kinds of things come to mind for you if you were not a psychologist and a writer? That's so funny because I actually was 10 when I decided I was going to be a child psychologist. So I was unusually laser focused. And then in college, I was an English major. I wasn't even a psychology major. I just really wanted to read and write and do all that stuff. And so I, so this is a hard question for me. My dream, if I were genetically blessed, would be to be a professional dancer. I love dancing. I took dancing for a long time, but you know, I just could never really quite cut it at anything serious, but I love it. Wow. Well, 
I don't know how you, if you feel this way, but I think so much like whether it's the English major, the arts background, these things actually help us far more than I think we realize even in our work as psychologists. I sometimes feel like I learn just as much about how to work with clients, how to talk about these topics, reading interesting biographies about people or being out in nature, just visiting places. And yeah, I think I, I would be surprised if that dance spirit is not with you in some way, shape or form, even to this to this day. Well, creativity. Well, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that uh, for that beautiful response, Emily. Thanks for putting me on the spot. <laughs> Always. Anytime. Anytime, anyplace here on the happy hour. <laughs> so, Emily, let's jump right in with your book. Um, your book is going to be coming out pretty soon here. And the title, Autonomy, Supportive Parenting. Maybe we can just start with what made you decide to want to write this book? So I can actually go back to when I became a mom, which is almost 14 years ago. So my oldest is 13, and then I have an 11-year-old, and my youngest is about to be nine. So when I first became a mom, I thought I was going to have it down because, you know, I'm a trained child psychologist. I've been working with parents and families and kids. And of course, that was not the case, as anyone who has had kids ever knows. They completely (laughs) blindside you. (laughs) There's no perfectionism in parenting. So I started to look at guidance that was out in the world, and I just realized how poorly the science was used and represented. And I just started to really pay attention to how I would do it differently if I had the chance. Very specifically, what was really popular when my daughter was born was attachment parenting. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being really, really disgusted almost that and disillusioned that the messaging was that you had to do these very specific practices to form a secure attachment with your baby. Mm -hmm. And I could just see how that would lead to so much maternal anxiety and guilt and feelings of failure and higher stress when being a new mom is hard enough. And so for I could never wear my babies, and that was one of the attachment parenting practices. And I wanted to, and I couldn't, but at least I didn't second guess that I was forming a positive, healthy attachment with my baby. So, okay, I won't t- talk you through 14 years of my life. So then fast maybe, forward. Maybe 13. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, In 2016, we made a big move for our family, and it was kind of a career and professional crossroads for me. So I'd been working in children's hospitals and academic medicine my whole career, and it was very intensive. My husband is also a psychologist, and so we both had these really, you know, tough schedules, and I realized there was a chance to reset and kind of look at the balance for our lives. And so I realized it was the opportunity for me to get back to writing, which is one of my loves, and intersect it with my passion for helping parents be more confident, less guilty, less stressed, and using my psychology background to just help create a more compassionate and science-based parenting guidance. Mm. I love that. I love, too, your own kind of awareness around thought I was going to be this perfect parent because I'm a child psychologist because I definitely had some uh, lofty goals around being a a really great parent, even though I primarily work with adults and um, it was a rude awakening. I now have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And I, when I was reading your book, I was thinking, 
I could do more of that and <laughs> should really be doing more of this. There was a lot of aha moments. So maybe yeah. we could jump into, can you break down what is autonomy supportive parenting? So it's so funny that I thought I knew so much. And then I realized there's this whole field of research in psychology about autonomy supportive parenting that had been going on since the early 90s. So now more than 30 years of really good, rigorous research. And it originated from comparing a different approach to controlling parenting. So the idea was controlling parenting has negative effects on kids. And we want to you know, show that and illustrate that with, with data. And so autonomy supportive parenting was kind of the opposite of controlling parenting. And it comes from another idea in psychology, which is self-determination theory, which is this idea that all of us, all humans have the same fundamental human needs for needs satisfaction, which is the idea that if we feel autonomous, competent, and connected or related, that we have greater life satisfaction and psychological health and greater well-being overall. So autonomy is part of parenting comes from those principles. And the idea is in granting our children more autonomy at all stages and opportunities for competence building within this very related connected relationship that our children grow more confident and competent and have greater psychological health and well-being too. Yeah. And one of the things that really strikes me as, I mean, there seems like there's incredible benefits from what you describe, not just for the kids in terms of developing into these more independent and, and flourishing little humans as they grow up, but also for the parents. And that kind of symbio- symbiosis between the two is a really kind of beautiful thing that seems to, to, to emerge from this. Can you speak to some of the sort of the benefits and the outcomes that you're able to identify, uh, both in terms of you know kids who are being parented more in this manner, as opposed to that sort of over, overprotection helicopter that we that we often would associate with that, versus as well as for the parents in terms of their satisfaction, their overall well-being. So how how does everyone in the system tend to tend to do when when this kind of parenting style emerges? So first, I'm really glad you hit on the parent experience because it's really important to me that that is centered right along with the child's experience of parenting. Mm-hmm. And I think most parenting guidance and approaches do not approach parenting guidance that way. So it's clear from the research, and it is common sense, that if we as a parent feel more autonomy, competence, and relatedness, we are more able to provide that same environment for our children. So it's really essential to prioritize our needs. And I know especially mothers really struggle with the idea of leaving young children for a weekend away or things like that, that actually end up being so important for their own health to have that sense of connection with friends and getting back in touch with parts of yourself that aren't your parent self. And you know, I will say being a parent is not the greatest exercise in feeling competent. <laughs> so being able to tap into areas of your life in your work or community or volunteering where you do feel really competent. And so parents that are more that rate higher on those constructs then are more likely to be autonomy supportive with their kids, which again makes sense. And so the benefits for kids are like I said, just greater independence, stronger skills. I mean, it's across social skills, cognitive skills, 
um, academic skills. And we can talk more later about how this also dovetails with the science of motivation, mm-hmm. that what autonomy supportive parenting really creates with its strategies is more internal motivation for the child. So they're feeling more in charge and connected to how they're living their lives and who they're developing to be as a person. And so that research really shows that kids who have grown up with who they see as autonomy supportive parents have you know less depression and anxiety and just greater kind of life skills and independence in their future as young adults. Yeah, I yeah. love what you outline. Oh, God, sorry. <laughs> no, I just love what you outlined there about sort of the, the need to, again, we, we know this intuitively with so many things in life, that like the need to pause and take care of oneself, the need to take a breather, and that's going to actually give you the fuel to do better in, in other domains. But it, it would seem like with parenting, that guilt that comes so quickly thereafter probably stops so many parents from being able to have that identity that's separate. But that's a beautiful illustration of like, not just better well-being for the parent, which is going to make them a better parent, but Mm -hmm. also giving that extra space to a child, right? That it becomes, I face this challenge and navigated and figured it out myself, as opposed to every problem being solved for you and sort of often coming from a really good place, but leaving a kid very stuck and infantilized and coddled in that way with a lot of negative outcomes associated with that. Right. And we're seeing that in our young adult population right now. Yes, very much Absolutely. so. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and generationally, you're probably seeing what in the current kind of age cohort that's now high school, college, young adulthood, quite a few of those trends, I would imagine, that come directly to, you know, born out of a lot of that kind of overprotective parenting and, and yep. infantilizing. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, so I spend the book really comparing autonomy supportive with controlling in what I hope is a very accessible real life way. And I think where we're all at risk right now in the current parenting culture is that, and there's recent surveys showing that parents are now seeing intensive parenting practices as good parenting. And so it feels like if I'm not watching my kids' grades on every assignment and monitoring their phone use every day, if I'm not doing all these things, I'm not being a good parent is what's being internalized. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that brings up this topic. You you talk in your book a lot about the pressures and, and even social norms that parents and children now are experiencing and how that all links up and manifests in this way where we might not be giving our kids as much autonomy around making decisions. And one of the things you do in your book is you outline really practical strategies to be a more autonomy supportive parent. And I'm wondering if you could talk about a few of those things and and how do you actually start to do this in everyday life from toddler to adolescence? Right. This was the biggest exercise of writing this book was taking 30 years of scientific journal studies and distilling it all into a really practical, applicable language for parents. And so I just want to be clear that I'm not an autonomy supportive parenting researcher. That is a whole group of people that have done amazing work. And even how I'm interpreting it is my interpretation. But I'm sort of blending, you know, real life and common sense with what is seen in the literature. And so what the tools tested in these studies include things like, 
you know, taking the child's perspective and using empathy. Those are ways to really nourish the relatedness piece so that you really understand where your child is coming from and what their experience is in a moment. And then offering choices, using rationale for rules. So instead of just saying, well, I'm the grown up, that's the rule. <laughs> that's not the Which, rule. It's okay to do that sometimes. Okay. I knew it. Um, and sometimes you have explained the rationale and they keep negotiating and you say, okay. <laughs> um, but in general, having a very collaborative approach with your child, um, using meeting them where they're at developmentally. So scaffolding is a really important part of autonomy supportive parenting. The idea that knowing where your child's skills are developmentally, meeting them there, but then nudging them forward to keep pushing on their growth. And then framing this all is the idea of values and living a life aligned with personal values. So as parents, we can do that by talking about our family's values, but it's also allowing your child the freedom to explore their own personal values, which may differ Mm -hmm. from yours. So. I would say in the day-to-day of parenting, it's using strategies that are helping a child feel a sense of agency Mm -hmm. in their daily life as much as possible and as much as safety allows and things like that. And then the bigger picture of autonomy supportive parenting is really nurturing the growth of a child to know who their authentic self is and feel loved and accepted for who that person is. So if we are really tuning in to our child's motivations and way they're identifying as a person and their personal values, expressing our understanding of where they're coming from, our love and acceptance for them, then they feel that freedom to be exactly who they are. And I mean, I think that's the ultimate goal of any parent, you know, except for some some on the margins maybe who aren't very healthy in general. But for most of us, that's what we're aiming for. This might be a sort of a question forming, but um, I'm curious about how malleable these styles tend to be and if there's been efforts kind of to look at that, because I'm sure there's perhaps people listening, right, that find themselves sort of very habituated, very used to a certain way of, of being, a certain way of parenting and maybe being, you know, finding appeal in this, but change is hard. So one one question was just around malleability of that. Second have there been any explorations of like the role, the impact, relatively speaking, of like genetic factors, personality factors in terms of some of this? Because I think you hear, you know, there's very different lenses you can look at this, but but some say things, this is a big overgeneralization, but that, you know, generally the, the band of possibilities is actually kind of largely determined there. And you're just kind of helping like the bumper cars mm-hmm. versus others that would say, know everything that you're doing can make or break a kid. And I think there's probably a lot of truth in the middle, right? Where parents feel like every decision I make is going to ruin the kid if I get this wrong. When in reality, if it's a safe environment, a loving enough, stable environment, you know, the the outcomes aren't going to differ widely there. So I don't know, anything that sort of jumps out to you there, either in terms of how changeable these habits tend to be or how like the role of temperament in parents versus kids, how did that interplay Mm -hmm. play out when it comes to these kinds of things? Two very important questions. So first, I present this as a framework, not a prescription, and that there is flexibility within this framework to adapt it to your family's culture, your family's values, um, your style, your personal preferences. And in my 
vignettes where I actually map out kind of scripts for autonomy, supportive versus controlling, I hope that I show that. That it's sort of like each parenting challenge or dilemma, you can sort of mix and match (laughs) the different strategies. I think the idea is your mindset is in general thinking, what is going on with my child? How can I understand what's happening? And then how do I help them feel a sense of agency in this situation? So it's more of the general mindset and then how you get there is very flexible in what works best for you, your child, and your family unit. In terms of the genetic and temperament question, there's definitely evidence that some children, and I can speak to this very personally, some children are just naturally very autonomous and easygoing. And so with those kids, they elicit more autonomy support from the adults in their lives. So parents, teachers, coaches, these kids are the ones just sort of, it's a very natural loop. You don't even realize you're being autonomy supportive because they're kind of pulling for it. And then there are the kids (laughs) who may be natural rebels, maybe natural, you know, negotiators, arguing things. And we do, there is some research with kids with ADHD and autism, for example, where because the behaviors are pull for more controlling responses from adults, they have more negative outcomes. They're more likely to experience controlling responses from parents and teachers. And then that has negative effects on kids. So I actually have a chapter. I mean, it could really be a whole book, but I have a chapter on neurodivergence in parenting with ADHD and autistic kids because when you're dealing with executive functioning differences, I mean, there's just, there's tweaking that has to be done. Mm -hmm. However, they still benefit from the feelings of autonomy, competence, and relatedness, of course. Mm -hmm. So- well, once yeah. you finish one book, you have to start the next. So there's, <laughs> there's your answer right there. No <laughs> well, and I really appreciate that this is a framework because, you know, as I think about my kids and the differences in their temperament, and I see that in them in terms of what's being pulled for. And, and again, I was also hoping, okay, so the second one is going to be easier because I've done this once and that also did not pan out the way that I had hoped. And so I'm learning a lot. And and I think that in your book, because there's a lot of really concrete strategies and things to try for kids that are different ages and for also for kids that might have different temperaments, it's really helpful to think more broadly about what my values are and what I'm hoping to achieve within that. One question, Emily, so you mentioned kind of controlling parenting on this continuum. And in your book, you talk a little bit about how this often manifests as a function of time and being limited on time. And an example that you give, which I think most parents can identify with, is get off your iPad or you're losing it for a week (laughs) or something along those lines with screen time. And I'm just wondering, given what we talked about in terms of the pressure on parents and culturally with work and with parenting and all of these other things combined, what would your advice be to a parent who is trying to balance and navigate doing something like this, where it's a, it might be a mindset shift that requires attention and that feels like they don't have the time to start to embark on this journey? So I think I would really examine where are the pain points for the parent? You know, where mm-hmm. is it patterns of interactions or behaviors that are causing stress in the day-to-day that feels like a motivation to make change. 
if there's not, then do what you're doing. Don't read my book. (laughs) (laughs) No, we want everyone to read your book. But but yes. But you know what I mean? It's like finding what's not working or what's not feeling right to me and then using that as motivation to open yourself up to different mindset and approaches and just thinking about what's going on with your child and you differently. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I mean, I feel like I'm very instinctually autonomy supportive, but when I was writing this book and I'm pretty transparent in the book, I was very aware of all my controlling Mm. impulses. I mean, I am definitely a perfectionist. And like I was joking earlier, parenting is not for perfectionists. (laughs) You know, our children do not do exactly what we want when we want them to because they are autonomous beings. (laughs) They're allowed. (laughs) But when you want a clean house and you want to be places on time, I mean, it can just, you know, kind of challenge that desire to be autonomy supportive. So I think it's having your own self-awareness as a parent too of those moments and being able to check yourself and ask yourself questions like, well, how important is it to get to dance class on the dot if my toddler is having a complete meltdown, right? Yeah. You you touched on something that I, I, I'm always very fascinated by whenever we get a chance to interview wonderful writers and people on this podcast. Um, and having written a bit myself, I think like the process of writing changes you. It doesn't just reach your readers or whoever that might be. Actually, something changes in you in the process. When I wrote a book on awe, I became much more attuned to like the wonders of the world around me. When I wrote a book on resilience, it shifted something in me in terms of how do I look at adversity. I'm wondering for you, for like listeners who are curious, like what what were a couple of the biggest shifts? You touched on it a moment ago, but I'm wondering if there were others as well of how this process, how this journey, because it is a journey to write a book like this. How did it change you? I would say it actually really helped me at a time of great change in my family when my oldest was entering middle school. And that was a really big transition. Mm -hmm. I had these, you know, fear-based visions of her because she suddenly just didn't want to be around us and wanted to be in her room. And I'm thinking, what is she doing up there? What is she getting into? You know, I can't keep an eye on her. And I realized how it was my own anxiety driving that. And it helped me to be writing this, to be aware that that's what was happening. And that she was, even though I know this as a psychologist with her development, it's totally healthy for her to be differentiating from us. It was good for her, in Mm -hmm. fact. And there have been times where we have had moments where initially I want to launch into a lecture because I hear something and I think, well, that's not okay. And we're going to sit her down and talk to her about her behavior. And then I remind, in fact, my husband will say, well, what does your framework say? (laughs) 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 Oh yeah. What would I tell myself? Um, (laughs) I'm like, well, we need to actually ask open-ended questions and we need to try and understand her experience and we really shouldn't just sit her down and start lecturing her. And so there was one instance, especially where we were able to pivot and kind of reset where we were. And when we had a conversation with her about an important issue, it ended up being incredibly connecting. Um, She became very open and vulnerable and shared some important things and 
had we approached her in our initial state of mind, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just really realized how how that much that affected our relationship at a point when she was 12 years old. And it's so important for us that we are considered a touchstone for her. Mm-hmm. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. I know. That's really great. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I was thinking about this as a psychologist, you know, we're so, and I'll speak for you too, Jenna, we're so tuned in to being empathic and thinking about things from the perspective of others. And <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time. Um, and I think that, you know, when I was reading your book and thinking about when, you know, I'm asking my son to give me back the iPad in the middle of his game, have I ever stopped to think about, oh, that probably feels very disruptive versus I am all knowing and all powerful and I think it's time for dinner. So everything would so be like somebody talk. turning your TV off in the middle of an arrested <laughs> development episode, Sabrina, you are. <laughs> which, yeah. <laughs> Would be war. Yeah. An act of aggression, an unprovoked act of aggression. Yeah, I don't think that I would survive that. Or Or me in the middle of like the third, fourth quarter of the Knicks game, someone just comes and turns that off. That would be, you know, violence as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, I would have to, yeah, that's a good perspective shift there. But Knicks, is that that sports, a sports team? It's a sportsing league. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, uh, yeah. Emily, I'm glad that you're not from Chicago because the Chicago Bulls were the big team that broke my heart many times during childhood as a as a Knicks fan. But you're you're a transplant, so you're. you're I am. I am. Oh, so that's why it was okay that we that's why it's this okay. Got Otherwise, it. okay. we wouldn't have had you on because no. I will not have any blacklisted red, yeah, for exactly. life. <laughs> There's a lot of that that happened. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think just kind of this overall collaborative approach that can be adopted across ages is so important to to having this autonomy supportive parenting and and it reminds me a bit of motivational interviewing around you know I think I've previously have approached my children as the expert of all things um, even though as you mentioned earlier it is not an area where most of us feel competent most of the time nonetheless I have embraced all the competence and really taking a step back and offering options and getting perspective and really you know having that empathy can go a long way and I've, I've started to try that with my son and Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but having that additional pause has been really helpful. Yeah, and I try to be pretty clear that this is not the panacea because there is none. Mm-hmm. And I'm really you know, hoping that it was. I know, I'm so <laughs> sorry. When I discover that panacea, I will write a book about it. Now, <laughs> add it to the list. Keep it a secret, though, because otherwise, you know, once that's out. Well, really, in the moment, autonomy supportive parenting can be more work. And more energy, which is why stress and parent anxiety undermines autonomy and supportive parenting. Mm -hmm. Because it takes energy to kind of stop in the moment and ask open-ended questions and think, how is my child? You know, that is tiring. So I I really encourage myself included um, that this is a practice, not an identity. This isn't another category that you are or are not in. This mm-hmm. is a way to wake up and I want to do this today. And every day is a new day. And we're all going to be shifting around on that continuum based on our stress, based on what's going on with our kids every day. And so it's kind of 
giving ourselves grace and compassion too. Mm-hmm. Very hopeful mm-hmm. message for listeners though, because more of a North yeah. Star that we can aim towards as opposed yeah. to achieve a binary yes or no sort of exactly. thing. So I love that. Hope for anyone, wherever you are, starting on that on that continuum, of course, which is, you know, I'm sure a function of many factors as we've talked about, but mm-hmm. always, always m- movement that's possible there. Yeah, you know, I know we're mindful of uh, here on how much time we we promised we would steal of yours. Um, so <laughs> I'm I'm thinking, Superior, why don't we uh, di- dive into what we do with each and every? We need like a sponsor for this segment, <laughs> but maybe you need to have more than you know a handful of episodes out before you get that sponsorship. <laughs> Our but North many thou- many thousands of <laughs> listeners that are you know tens of thousands across all the the countries of the world right now as, as you're tuning in, it is time for our for our lightning round of here on the happy hour. Zoom zoom zoom. Whatever sort of sound effect we can put in there. Thunder. Uh, thunder we'll and lightning. That. We're going to work, work on, on that. that. We're going to have to have like a, a, a flash across the screen for the, for the YouTube version of this. But uh, anyways, Emily, we always uh, wrap things up with just a few quick uh, lightning round questions that we get to know you a little bit further and help listeners understand some, some take-homes from your work. So you touched on this a bit, but I'd love for you to, to think about like one thing that you would encourage listeners to do in terms of like one change that they can make based on your work and what we've talked about today. Anything that comes to mind there? I mean, besides everything we talked about, I would generally say to just relax. <laughs> just relax. I like just that. Just relax. I'm relaxing. Take a deep breath. Everyone who's been <laughs> listening be okay. with great tension, <laughs> you have permission from Emily. You can just take a deep breath and relax. I love it. I feel better. You. I feel better already. <laughs> Perfect. Because <laughs> when we're more relaxed, our kids feel more relaxed mm-hmm. and everything goes more smoothly. Fabulous. Okay. I like that one. I feel calmer. Okay. So Emily, can you tell us one thing you're working on that you're excited about? I am going to be launching a new skill set and it hasn't been announced yet. So it's a surprise. Do you want to announce it here on the happy? (laughs) (laughs) It's a surprise. Live live for all the listeners. This is where we break breaking news. news. (laughs) Well, I can say it's going to be podcasting. I just can't say where. All right. Well, we we will be waiting for that news, but that's exciting. Very very exciting. And we're a little biased, Supri and I, but but we think it's a great medium for sure. (laughs) So we'll we'll, we'll wait for that. And uh, when that news comes, we look forward to sharing it with our uh, our listeners as well. Next question. What is one thing not work-related, one thing on a personal level that you're looking forward to right now, whether it's an event coming up, a trip, something you're attending, going to, milestones? What is it uh, that comes to mind for you? How can I not mention my book launch, which is a week from tomorrow, but I know this won't. You can mention that as a bonus. We give you permission. (laughs) When a book is a a week away from launching, then you're allowed to be excited about that. That is the exception. So you get a twofer for this question. (laughs) Uh, My my youngest is about to turn nine. He's going to be nine in a few days. So that's a really big milestone. Fun birthday plans? Um, It's going to be a video game sleepover. You know, all the Nintendo and Xbox and pizza and ice cream. So that sounds good that? to a grown ass man like me too. So this is, that sounds pretty good. Pizza, ice cream. Change or, you know, this is, this is life. <laughs> Look forward to many decades of that. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, happy early birthday to him. Okay, so last question and an important one on the happy hour. Emily, how do you cultivate happiness and well-being in your daily life? I would call myself aggressive about my own time. So I have three kids. I do clinical work. I write. And I make sure that I carve out time to just sit by myself and read or meditate or listen to podcasts or go on walks. But it is a high priority for me. I believe that. I got that from that. (laughs) That's great. Well, we feel extra special that you came on the show. Despite being so protective of your time, so walking this whole time, (laughs) you could have been walking. You could, yeah, any. So we're we are honored. Um, Well, Emily, obviously, your your book coming right up, autonomy, supportive parenting, is going to be, I think, help so many families, so many parents, so many kids out there. We have no doubt about that. We are very, very excited for you, listeners. You can get that book wherever books are sold. Right, you can get it on Amazon. You can go to your Barnes and Noble. You can go to your Borders bookstore. Actually, I think they all closed, but you can go. (laughs) Wherever it is that you get your book, don't go to Borders, um, but anywhere else, <laughs> go to your local booksellers. And uh, anything else, uh, Emily, that you would share about sort of the book coming up and also where listeners can find you? So websites, social media, Godforsaken Twitter, or X, X, X No, now. I'm not is calling it, X? it that. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> So I have my website is emilyedlinphd.com and I have a blog there as well as other resources. And then I have a Substack newsletter called The Art and Science of Mom. And I'm doing weekly autonomy supportive diaries. And so it's taking some of the concepts from my book and applying it to real stuff happening in parenting life. And I can be found at Dr. Emily Edlin on Twitter. Instagram, LinkedIn, and uh, Facebook, it's Art and Science of Mom. Awesome. And we're going to put those all into our show notes as well, so listeners can find you at any of those places and then some. Congratulations, pre-congratulations on the launch. This is going to be, um, I think, such a big hit. And we're honored that we got the chance uh, to chat with you about it today. Yes. An awesome book. I highly recommend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emily. Emily. And listeners, we will see you next time on The Happy Hour. As always, I am Jonah Paquette, with me, Supriya Gill, and it's been a pleasure talking with Emily Edlin today. Thanks so much, Emily. 